Well, good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater Church. My name is Josh. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and it's also my privilege to welcome you here today as we kick off a brand new series entitled Be Real. Um, jersey I'm wearing is not uh, anything other than just a nod to our kids ministry workers who are working to put on uh, Super Cereal Bowl Sunday in kids ministry. It has nothing to do with the fact that Steelers should have been in the Super Bowl or anything like that. Um, anyway, uh, in a store offering 1.96 million items, one of them became a number one bestseller. In a competing store, though very similar store, offering 2.87 million items, this same product rose to the top. Millions of people will stop to get it. You might be one of them who has shopped at either one of these stores. The stores are Apple's App Store and Google's Play Store, and the app is called Be Real. 73 million people and counting have downloaded this app and are using it. Um, it rose to popularity because of what it doesn't do. It does not offer any filters. It does not let you dress yourself up and, uh, and make you look better than you really are. The whole idea is you're, it's just the real you. It's the real you. So what happens is at some point during the day, a random moment in the day, everyone who's on this app will get a notification. You've got two minutes to take a picture of yourself and simultaneously it'll take a picture of you and whatever's around you, front and back camera, and then you just post it. And so you get some awkward, you know, looking uh, selfie pictures with everything else that's going on. And it's, it's really hard to doctor it up and dress it up. If you retake the picture, it lets everyone know that you retook it or how many times you retook it to know whether or not it's actually real. Now, I'm not recommending the app. I'm just saying that it's very, very popular. And I think it's popular because it doesn't have any filters. It doesn't have any frills. It, it feels real. And I think it speaks to an itch that we all have to have things that are real. We want the authentic, real thing, whether it's a food or a product, a clothing line, firearm, whatever it is. We don't want the fake. We don't want the replica. We don't want the copy. We want the real thing. There's something in us that drives us to want things that are real. And today and for the next four weeks, we're going to be getting into the Bible book of James to talk about what real faith looks like. We're going to try to take away the filters, take away uh, the things that can dress it up and make it seem other than what it really is. We're going to do our best to do that. James was written by Jesus' half-brother to followers of Jesus scattered all over the place. And uh, he really changes from subject to subject, introducing what I think are tests or examples of what real faith looks like in everyday life. And so by bringing up a number of different real-life situations for his audience, he helps bring to the surface the true condition of their faith and helps them to be able to look around and see, uh, to recognize real faith when they see it. And here in week one, we're taking a look at what real faith looks like in a very, very fun topic to talk about, and that is suffering. Trials. So I'm sorry, but it's heavy, and I'm just going to set it there, and then we're going to have to deal with it together. Um, for followers of Jesus, these trials that we go through expose the true condition of our faith. There's no two ways about it. And we'll see how our responses to our trials uh, demonstrate the quality, the reality of our faith, and what are those areas of need that we each have that we need to grow into. And so we'll be able to tell, hopefully, whether or not our faith is real or whether it's filtered, counterfeit, 
Okay, so I'll start this way. When I was nine years old, I got my first job and I was a paper boy. I've told many of you that before. I delivered papers from age nine to 18. It's what I did. It's how I got into college and started making payments there. It's how I developed some kind of a work ethic, uh, but evidently being the youngest of four children, uh, I had this thing about me that my mom and dad recognized, but I couldn't tell it was there, and it was called being a baby. Um, and so what happened was I got about 10th grade, and my dad decided enough's enough. I'm not going to raise a baby, uh, not for long anyway. So he started lining up some jobs for me. And he told me he was going to, and I thought, wow, my dad's helping me make some money. I'm going to do my paper out in the morning and then go do my job, and this is going to be great. But the offers that he came to me with, well, they, let me, they weren't really offers or suggestions. They were like, here's the job you're reporting to beginning Monday. And what he did is he found what I think are the worst, most scummy, difficult, terrible jobs you could ask a young person to do. And... Um, some of it, honestly, it's just me. I know many of you would like that stuff. A saw machine factory was one. Um, and it wasn't so much that we were working all kinds of different saws and cutting wood and getting splinters underneath our fingernails. It was, it was the quality of the supervision that was there. These bosses were hard guys, at least to me. Now, I was a baby, so maybe anyone who told me what to do seemed like a hard kind of guy to work for. But it went from that to roofing houses, to framing houses. It was one hard thing after another. And I began to wonder, what had I done to my dad? Was this vengeance? Was he taking something out? Like, was he taking it out on me? It was something I had done to offend him or to hurt him? Um, truth was, he saw something in me that I didn't see for myself, but he needed these difficult things to be applied to my life so that I would see what he could see. And that's exactly what happened. And at first, I thought he was something, he was doing something to me. Later on, I realized he was doing something for me. And I'm grateful today. Um, I can't say I was grateful at that point. Um, but he knew that what was going on in my life and wanted to give me the necessary nudge. And so though I'm going to use an example of difficult jobs for a teenager to talk about trials in life, the truth is I'm looking at you guys I know who some of you are online. I know who many of you are in the room, and I know the kind of stuff that God has asked you to go through. What I don't want to do today is make light of your trial by trying to compare a difficult teenage job to what you've walked through. For many of you, the things you've gone through are just hard to talk about. And so for many of you too, I think that they're not past things, they're present things. So though I want to choose an example to help communicate to the most amount of people possible, I don't want you to think for a second that what you're going through isn't hard or difficult or that I somehow think it's comparable to my, to my dirty jobs. So uh, all of us I, I know who are here today are beginning to understand, if we don't understand already, that life is complex. Life is difficult. It's not simple. Uh, but we're going to learn from God's Word, the Bible today, uh, what we can do with those trials and difficulties that we inevitably all face. Difficulties of life have a way of revealing our readiness, our maturity level. Life has a way of bringing us reality checks in form of trials. So whether, whether it's uh, you, 
you joined a team and you got into the practice and you thought it was going to be fun shooting hoops and all you're doing is running sprints or you joined wrestling because you thought it'd be kind of fun to just pin someone and all you do is just eat and then you lose weight and you gain weight and lose weight and then you just the practices are brutal. It's just nonstop exertion. I can't think of a worse sport to, to try, by the way. It just, aside from the, the thrill of the pin, I don't know what else about wrestling is appealing. Um, because it just is work, work, but I'm a baby. So, uh, you know, so whether you're a follower of Jesus here this morning with us online or here in the room or not, I think you can relate to the fact that life is tough. Life is difficult. And, uh, we're going to get in, get into, uh, finding out what our responses to our difficulties tell us about ourselves. So James gets right to work in the beginning of his letter, giving us three reality checks, um, talking about trials, which is something common to the human experience. Here's how he begins in verse two. And if you have your Bibles or devices, James chapter one, verse two, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. There it is. He says something really weird. He says, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. And here he introduces the first reality check, and that is this. My values shape my evaluation. My values shape my evaluation. He says, consider it pure joy. Why? Why did he have to tell them to consider your trials pure joy? It's because it doesn't come naturally to us. It didn't come naturally to them. Whose first response in a difficulty or trial or pain or tragedy is joy? It's not my default. I would be shocked if it was yours. They needed to come to the place, James says, where they valued those tests of faith. So James is actually calling them to a, a perspective shift, a values shift. And it would have felt weird. It's kind of like when someone's teaching you to exercise or work out. If you've ever, ever worked with someone who knows what they're doing and they tell you how to hold the barbell or the dumbbell or the position you're supposed to be in to do the move, you're like, it doesn't feel right. And they're like, yeah, that's perfect. But, but it's heavy. Are you doing it right? Quit being a baby. And he says we're supposed to value in verses two and three what that trial is producing, which is perseverance. Well, what's the big deal about perseverance? We'll cover that in a minute. Getting back to verse two, he says, when you face trials of many kinds, he doesn't say if, they're inevitable. We don't, we don't get to choose whether or not they come. They just come. Now, sometimes we don't help ourselves out. We can create them. We can just step in it and do something on our own, but sometimes they come from other places. So James is getting ready, getting us ready for when we'll encounter them. And James is kind of given the idea that life is like a big schoolhouse and it's one test at the end of the year followed by another test. And you're not ready for the next test until you pass this test. When you pass this test, you've got enough maturity. You've got enough readiness. Now you're ready for the next thing, but you don't get the next thing until you have this thing because this thing prepares you for the next thing. And life is just kind of like that. And, and here's a little clue. You never feel ready for the next thing. When you face it, you're convinced you can't handle it. It always feels like too much. James says there are trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. 
So he's saying there's a whole variety of trials out there. It's not as though there are some you're supposed to have joy in and others you're not. He's saying there's a bunch of different kinds you need to have joy because of what the trial is producing. So the reality check is our values shape our evaluation. If we value growing to become more like Jesus, we will then value what gets us there. But I think where we go off track is we don't think what gets us there is the same as what God thinks is going to get us there. And that's where we struggle. If we value perseverance, we'll trust the process. If we value comfort and ease, we'll value what gets us those things. Why did my dad value so much giving me those hard jobs? Because he could tell what it was going to do in me. I was looking for easy money. He was looking for a kid who would grow up. My dad saw the jobs he was lining up for me as valuable, as helpful. I saw them as trials. The difference isn't what I faced. The difference is what we valued. I valued something completely different for myself than my dad valued for me. My dad knew something else, and it's what James goes on to say in the next verse. So look at verse 4. Here's what James says. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The next reality check is this. My difficulties are the pathway to my development. My difficulties are the pathway to my development. Now, James says your trials produce perseverance. And we said, what's so special about perseverance? Here's what's so special about perseverance. It enables you to be mature and complete. The idea here is you're fully furnished. You're not missing any parts. Everything you need for what you're going to do is there. That's what perseverance does in us. It helps us, it gives us everything we need to be able to do what's coming next. And somehow, somehow, this news is supposed to be good enough for us. Oh, perseverance, great. <laughs> well, bring on the trials. We're still not there? Okay, well, let's keep going. Somehow, Perseverance is supposed to be good enough news for me that I'm supposed to take joy in my trials and not try to escape them. I think James is communicating to us here that the way God develops patience and character in our lives is through the trials. No one develops patience by reading a manual on it. No one gets in shape by reading a book on working out. There's no easy fix. We've got to go through the difficulties of life and then trust God and obey him. And the result will be growth in patience and character. Knowing this, James is convinced that we can face trials with joy. What do we do with that gap though? What, how is James so convinced? Convinced enough to write it down and spread it out. Because reading it, I'm not there yet. James had a way of thinking that trials are working not against us, but for us. They're not doing something to us. They're doing something for us. I remember disciplining my children. Well, not that I don't do that anymore, I guess. But I remember when they were younger and we're ready to apply the discipline and having a conversation with any of them, something like this. I know it feels like I'm doing something to you. But I promise you, your mom and I are doing something for you. You need what this discipline 
is going to bring. And I wonder if in the trials of life, I feel like that young child going, yeah, right. I actually think you like this, Dad. There are times that we don't endure through trial. Trials come and we do our best to get out of them. We complain, we whine, we manipulate the situation, we try to escape, we try to get out of there. But we short-circuit the process because we don't get to move on to the next level of development until we graduate from that one. And if we're staying in the same place and we haven't developed, God will bring something designed to do the very same thing in our lives. Not to us, but for us, so that we can be developed and ready for the next thing. My dad knew exactly what he was doing. I wasn't so convinced. I'm thankful today. You see, it's not really, normally, it's not, a, it's not until we're able to look back on the difficulty that we're able to see how helpful it was. It's a hindsight blessing. Rarely do we get a foresight blessing or, or the blessing of soaking in the present as if this trial was a blessing. But that's what James is calling us to. He says, you guys aren't close. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta trust God. You gotta do it. Life is difficult. Oh, I'm not saying they're not trials. I'm not saying they're not difficult. I'm not saying they're not testing you. I'm not saying they're not painful, but I'm saying you're missing something here. If you're not choosing joy in trials, there's something that you're missing. And I need to help you with it. But as I look around here, I know that many of you are walking as examples of what it looks like to trust God through a trial. Because you've been through it. And he was the only thing you could hold on to. And at times he felt so far away but you came through it and you realized as much as you were trying to hold on to him, he was holding on to you the whole time. And you can be helpful to the rest of us who get lost in the pain of the trial, who get lost in the difficulties of life. We need you to help us to be convinced that what James is saying here is true. But what about when we face something so immense, so tragic, so difficult, that there couldn't possibly be anything good in it? What about those things that you look at and say, there is no good in that and no good that can come from that? What about those things? I wonder what comes to your mind when we talk about that. What if something so heinous, so awful, that there just couldn't be anything good from it, anything good about it? James goes there. Look at verses five, six, seven, and eight. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Here's what James is getting at. My responses reveal the quality of my faith. My responses to my trials reveal the quality of my faith. You see, when we run into the problem of encountering a trial that cannot be rejoiced in, James says the problem is not with God. The problem is not with the trial. The problem is with you. The problem is with me. And he said, the problem is you lack wisdom. 
Anytime I do not see a trial through the lens of joy because of what God is doing, it means I lack wisdom. Now, it could sound like maybe a slap in the face. You lack wisdom. Just get with the program and you'll see this as a joy. I don't think that's what we're saying. I actually think it's a gracious thing. That God says the thing that fills the gap between you seeing a trial as beneficial and the trial actually proving to be beneficial in your life is wisdom. And if that's your problem, whoa, good for you. Because God gives wisdom generously to all who ask. So when I can't see a trial, how a trial in my life could be good, it doesn't mean I found the kind of trial that's not beneficial. It means I lack wisdom. I lack wisdom. The context of the verse, this is the context of the verse that many of us know. How many of us, how many of you, I wonder, get into a tough spot and say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God and he will give, you, give it to you generously without finding fault. God, just please give us wisdom to know what to do. You know what that is? That situation is a trial. And you know what you're doing? You're doing the right thing. You're asking God for the wisdom that you need to get through the trial, but not simply to navigate your way through it, but to see it the way he sees it. To see it as something that's being done for you and not done to you. I think that's amazing. Because when we hit that spot where it just doesn't seem like it couldn't be good, God isn't saying do extra work, do extra chores, do extra spiritual things, get on your knees and pray and, and wake up real early in the morning and read five extra chapters of your Bible and, and give more money to charity. He says, just ask for wisdom. And I'll give it to you. I will give it to you. I wish I could say that this is what I often do because it's just so easy. Oh, just ask God for wisdom. <laughs> no, I don't because I'm a baby. I, I deny the, the problem. I run from it. I could work to medicate so I don't feel the problem, insulate myself from it. I could go to despair. I could try to manipulate the situation or other people so I don't have to deal with the problem. But when I do that, James says, my response reveals the quality of my faith. You know what I'm demonstrating? That I doubt God. I don't trust him. I don't think that he's good. If I don't think that God is good and what he's doing is good, I will never go to him because I will never go to someone I don't trust. I I'm not going to go to God if I don't think he's good. So when I don't see God as good because my trial's not good, I'm not going to go to him for help. And he's the one place I need to go because he has what I need. He has the wisdom that he says I need to be able to see my trial as something to be rejoiced in because of what it's doing in me. I think many of us think that God is just this, he's either too soft or he's too hard. And maybe he's this sovereign, tough guy up there like, hey, it's a trial, get through it. Come on. It's not his posture. It's not what he does. But when we think less of God than who he is, we fail to pray to him, to ask. And I, maybe prayer is the biggest enemy to unbelief. Maybe the, the greatest enemy to answered prayer is unbelief. We can doubt God's power to work on our trials. We can doubt his agenda. We can assume he's up to no good or nothing good can come from it. Talk about someone who suffered. How many of you have heard the name Corey Ten Boom? Corey Ten Boom was a Holocaust survivor, a Dutch girl, part of a family who hid Jews in their home 
when Nazi Germany was searching them out. They were found out, sent to a Ravensbrück concentration camp. She survived. She's a follower of Jesus. The woman's gone through it. You can read about it in her book, The Hiding Place. Here's what she says. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. What a thing. What a thing for her to say. I want to further illustrate this, and I've asked Dylan to come up here and, and help me with it. He's going he's to help me illustrate this point. I think at times we wish, don't we, that life would just go smoothly. Just settle down. Just enough with all the ups and downs. Just give me a quiet, peaceful, predictable life. I think when life is boring, we want some adventure, but when the adventure comes in the form of a trial, we're like, no, 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 settle it back down. Plain, a plain, average, ordinary life would be great. No dark tunnels, no difficulty, no pain of trials. We'd love to have those things just edited out, removed from our story, but today we're not doing that because we're being real, okay? If our life were set to a soundtrack, I think oftentimes we might want the soundtrack to sound something like, like this. Familiar? Ah, oh. and that was the end of the story. Wouldn't it be nice if that's just the soundtrack of your life, just plain, ordinary, but we're being real, so we know that's not the way life works. It's not simple, it's not plain, it's not all happy notes, pleasant chords, and a and a tune you can hum. Sometimes life throws us chords like these. Doesn't sound very happy. Sometimes they just sound downright nasty like this. You feeling good feelings? Sometimes they're even like this. And we wonder why we have those. What place do those have in that song? What place do moments like that have in our lives? What could possibly be going on? But as we've learned, and as James has told us, God is doing something beyond the scope of our reasoning, beyond the scope of our perspective. There's something that he's doing through the trials that couldn't be accomplished without them. He's making something of our lives far more beautiful. And our problem is not with the cords, with the trials themselves. Our problem is we don't see the full scope of how they fit in to the rest of our lives. Because if we did, I think we would stand back and say, now that is beautiful. Because sometimes those terrible minor chords appear in a song, but actually make it way more beautiful. And it sounds more like this.
Thank you, Dylan. It's when those minor chords come. We'd rather do without them. But what you get when they're added to the scope of what God is doing is something far more beautiful, far more creative, far more imaginative, and far more profitable for you and for me. So what does faith, real faith, look like in trials? I think it looks like joy because of an, of an expectation that God is doing something valuable, something worthwhile in our lives that could not be achieved another way. And in our pursuit of something real, God graciously provides trials to both reveal the condition of our faith in God and to produce the maturity in us that we so desperately need. The truth is, there is no real faith without real testing. You don't get there except through testing. My dad knew this about me when it came to work. God knows this about you when it comes to faith. But more than that, we got to consider Jesus. What is his place in all this? What is his posture in all of this? Jesus went before us not only as our Savior, but also as our example. And here's what the writer of Hebrews has to say in Hebrews chapter 2. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Perfect, mature, fully developed. Same exact word that James uses. Even Jesus was made perfect, mature, ready through what he suffered. He didn't complain, but he committed himself to God. He didn't escape, but he, he embraced God in the suffering. And he didn't resist, but he rested in God's plan for his trials. And he did this for you. And he did this for me so that we would seek him when we're in trial, when, when we're in suffering. Jesus can not only relate to you when you suffer, but he can also save you from the brokenness and pain that you experience because of your sin. How good is he? God is always accomplishing something good through trials because through Jesus' trials, he accomplished the ability for you and me to be forgiven of our sins and be made right with God. And if God can do that through the death of his son, what might he be able to accomplish through your trial and difficulty? I don't think there's anything beyond the scope of his ability to use it for your good. So we do. We do have the option of joy now in process and not simply from hindsight. And I, I, wanna, I wonder what values are surfacing in your life through the trials that you're going through? What is being revealed about the quality of your faith through the things that you are enduring? Like me, comfort, convenience, are those the values surfacing? Ease, predictability, wealth, stability, pleasure? I wonder if there are ways that you and I are re resisting 
God's development process in our lives, short-circuiting it, escaping from it. And I wonder what situation you need God's wisdom for. I think the beauty in today is not only that Jesus went first, but God stands ready to simply fill the gap that exists in our minds and in our hearts with wisdom when we ask in faith. So maybe, like Jesus, you need to resolve to not complain, but commit. Commit yourself to God in it. Maybe, like Jesus, you need to resolve to not escape, but embrace it. Don't look for the way out. The way out is through. And maybe, like Jesus, you need to resolve to not resist what God is doing, but rest in the fact that he is doing something in your life, and that something is very, very good. Today was trials. Next week, temptations. Going to have some fun. Would you pray with me? God, we are looking to you because where else can we look? You are the source of wisdom. You are the source of everything good in our lives. But the truth is, I doubt you. I question you. I complain. I work to get out of the good things that you are doing. The very thing that you put there on purpose feels like an accident. And I often don't like it. But I admit this morning that the deficiency is not in you or your plan. The deficiency would be in me and my perspectives. I'm asking you to give me the perspective I need to trust you in my trials so that you can do the good work in me that couldn't be done without them. Please do this for your glory and my joy. In Jesus' name, amen.